I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so happy to be sitting across from Garth Greenwell today. Garth is the author of What Belongs to You, which won the British Book Award for debut of the year and was longlisted for the National Book Award. And his next wonderful novel in that world is called Cleanness. Um, Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, what a delight. Um, Tell me about writing two novels that that contain the same narrator and the right. same world but are, are very different. Yeah. So one of the first things I understood about What Belongs to You, which I wrote while I was living in Bulgaria. I, mm. I lived and taught high school in Sofia, Bulgaria um, from 2009 to 2013. And I began writing What Belongs to You and finished writing What Belongs to You while I was there. And I understood very early on that it was a very streamlined container. Yes. It's a book about an obsessive relationship. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it needed to be really tightly, almost claustrophobically focused on that relationship. But I knew that the world was bigger. And so, (laughs) you know, actually the first couple of what would become chapters, I didn't know they were part of a book, but the first couple of scenes – um, or the earliest couple of scenes that I wrote of cleanness, um, actually I wrote while I was working on What Belongs to You. I would finish a section of that novel and then turn and write these sort of shorter pieces. But it wasn't until um, I was had written three or four that I started to understand there was a structure they would fall into. Right. And tell me a little bit about that structure because I, I you know, you just have this delightful uh, profile in the New York Times, in which I learned um, that you borrowed a term from classical music to describe how your what your format is. Please talk about that. Yeah, which, you know, I know that that seems kind of impossibly pretentious. No. Um, but it's also just true. You know, my first education in the arts yes. was as a singer. 
And I grew up in Kentucky. I was first generation raised off the farm and still spent a lot of time on my family's tobacco farm. It was not a household that was that was steeped in any way in culture or in which the arts were very important. And in high school, a, a choir teacher at um, the public high school in Kentucky where I was studying heard something in my voice and started giving me lessons and gave me art. Oh. And um, so, you know, discovering both the world of art which was so different and seemed to me so much bigger than the world in which I was born and that also had a place for me in a way yes. that the world in which I was born did not. And then also this voice that was so much bigger than anything I thought I might contain. You know, it suggested like a scale of myself I had had no idea I might I might have. And so um everything in in my sense of what is beautiful in my sense of what drama is, and in my sense of how smaller pieces can build into bigger holes, yes, comes from classical music. And so, you know, um, I sang a lot of art songs and a lot of German Lieder. Lieder is just the German mm -hmm. word for song. And um, when I was, when I became aware that this was a book, and that these pieces that I had been writing formed not a continuous whole like a novel right. where like there's chronology and narrative cause and consequence, but mm -hmm. instead that they were these almost autonomous sort of centers of intensity mm -hmm. that existed in a kind of constellation and that they there were, you know, pieces that mirrored each other and spoke to each other in various ways. The form that came to mind was a leader cycle, like Schubert's Winterreise was actually the, the the work I had in mind. Because the way these pieces hang together, I mean, they all have the same narrator. They're all in the same world. They yes. do all sort of tell pieces of the same story. Yes. But those pieces aren't arranged in the ways that stories are usually arranged. No. And they're instead, you know, the connections between them are about like key and tone mm. and texture and – um yeah, I mean, the models that I turned to really were not novel or story, story collection, right. but instead leader cycle. And I'm very grateful to, to, um, FSG, my publisher, that they, you know, we had conversations. Um, there was some sense that maybe we should call it a novel, but I thought, well, but it's, that's not exactly the tradition it's working in. And they let me publish it just as a work of fiction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I actually – but, you know, people have been calling it all sorts of things. There are reviews that call it a story collection. There are reviews that call it a novel. I am happy for people to talk about it however they experience it. If I – in my ideal world, I would say this is my song cycle. I love that and I hadn't even considered that – I remember ages ago when there were linked story collections and – the the fight about, well, isn't that just what a novel is? Well, and it's interesting now, you know, and I think some of this is the pressures of marketing, but some yeah. of it is also, I do think there's an interest right now in the arts about um, sort of um, unconventional linkages. Yeah. And, you know, I am interested in art. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the recent books that 
um, really just made my head feel like it was exploding was Lisa Halliday's Asymmetry. Mm. And that mm -hmm. is a book and the, another one and a book that suggested to me actually the structure of What Belongs to You, oh. a very brilliant South African writer, Damon Galgut, and his book published by Europa in the States called In a Strange Room. And these are books, both of those books have such confidence in the power of juxtaposition. Yes. And I find that really exciting. You know, but so, you know, if something like a book like David Saloy's All That Man Is, yes, which, you know, um, to me does really feel like a story collection, mm -hmm. but, you know, um, he, he calls it a novel. And I think it's really interesting to think about that book, which is a very brilliant book, you yes. know, as a novel. I, and I, I hadn't even occurred to me that even though these pieces of the, of, of this collection are, work of fiction are <laughs> distinct. Can, call it whatever you want. It's fine. That, yeah. Well, because I, it felt to me like I was revisiting an old friend. Oh, well, I like that. You know, I like long, I like the experience of long acquaintance. You know? But of course, it's not necessary that people read the first novel before that's they right. delve into this. And, you know, that's an experience of art that I really love to, you know, I like sort of well-made, autonomous things, things mm -hmm. that stand on their own. But then I also like the feeling that these, you know, well-made, formally complete things, that they can also be porous and kind of intermingle, you yeah. know? So Proust feels that way to me. W.G. Zabald feels that way to me. Rachel Cusk feels that mm -hmm. way to me. And, you know, that feeling that like, you know, it's a self-contained world and people absolutely can read cleanness without what belongs to you. Yep. But, you know, if you read both books, each book I think is changed by the other and the books become porous and become this kind of larger world. Yes. And that's, um, you know, I don't know what I want to write in 10 years, but right now that excites me a lot. I love that, especially because <laughs> – when you're caught in the grips of obsession, yeah. you think that's the only thing that exists in wow. the world. And that is a deep question of, of you know, the sorts of things I write about. Yeah. yeah. And um, the idea that even your narrator is able to take a step back and, and have other experiences. and Yeah. You know, there is really something to that, you know. And this idea of these separate experiences because you know another thing that this book is really interested in is um you know the experience like epiphany you know this yes. this old sort of literary idea or technique that has really fallen into disfavor you know mm. the idea that we could suddenly the we could have the experience of the world opening up and delivering us some kind of meaning well you know and you know now there's a sort of prejudice that that's hokey or contrived and it can be – sorry – that it's um, – there's a sense that that's hokey or contrived and it can be. But it's also the case that I think that's true. Yes. You know, I think we do have that experience of the world opening up and of a sudden acquisition of knowledge and that that's a really important experience when we have it. But then I also – and I wanted to honor that. Mm -hmm. You know, and in these stories or chapters, there are moments of epiphany mm -hmm. and moments where a character feels like they have attained some secure knowledge of the world. But then I also wanted to suggest that 
that knowledge might not be portable. Right. You know, it's kind of like the experience of love. And in the first chapter, yes. one of the narrator's students tells the narrator, and he's just been heartbroken um, by his first love, which is um, something that many queer people have experienced, which is realizing that his feelings for his best friend are actually more than friendship, that they're you know, feelings of love and having that a confession of that break the relationship. Right. And he's in this experience of just overwhelming love, overwhelming heartbreak. And he feels like that experience tells him the truth about himself and the truth about his world. And the narrator outside that experience yes. says, you'll get over it. You know, you'll, <laughs> it'll get better. And the student says, I don't want it to get better. Like, no. you know, like this is my truth. If it gets better, then, you know, this must be false. And there was a way that I wanted both to, um, you know, honor and reverence that those feelings from the inside. Yes. But also register in the form, you know what? This epiphany, this realization, this certainty has validity, has value. Um, but maybe you don't get to carry it to the next story. You know, maybe yes. it's not portable. And that's another thing that the form is kind of, I hope, allowing me to do. And and what a brilliant way to start, too, with an experience that is almost universal, right, I would absolutely. say. Absolutely. Sure. Just about everyone I know can 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 look back on themselves at that time and think, you're going to be okay. Right. This isn't the life or death situation that's that you right. think it is. That's right. And you know um, – both of those kinds of knowledge are important. Right. You know, I mean, that experience of first love, which is so out of scale and, yes. you know, because it's it doesn't have the education of repetition. Right. Of knowing that you can feel these things again, of knowing that, you know, the despair you feel will lessen. You know, that is a formative experience. We are all the people we are because we were shaped by that first experience of love and loss. Yes. And so – you know, I wanted to honor it. I didn't want to be ironic and deflating about it. No. Yeah. And you weren't. Um, tell me tell me more about Bulgaria as what drew you to it and then what draws the narrator to it because you are two distinct people. We are two distinct <laughs> people. You know, we don't really know why the narrator is there. And that was something that, um, you know, I really did – you know, I think because my literary background is in poetry mm -hmm. and, you know, after I, I left music school and started studying poetry and in lyric poems, there's a lot of information that like novels lead you to expect that you just leave out. Right. <laughs> you don't care much about backstory. Right. You don't need a lot of the sort of David Copperfield kind of, you know, <laughs> this is my path. Exactly. You know, you just leave that out and you sort of trust the reader to be okay without it. And so we don't know why the narrator is there. The reason I went there was because there was a job. <laughs> and, you know, I was teaching high school. I had left a PhD program and then I taught high school for three years in Ann Arbor. I loved teaching high school. I loved working with young people. I had always wanted to live abroad and never had. And um, I signed up with a placement agency to, that places teachers abroad. And um, there were two jobs. One was at a very posh school in Switzerland where I would have had, you know, really elite kids and lived in a very beautiful place and 
made a lot more money. Um, <laughs> and then there was this job in Bulgaria. And I have to say, when I took the job or when I first started researching the job, I don't think I could have found Bulgaria on a map, which is true of a lot of Americans. Sure. And, you know, it was kind of a shock to me because it, it, it to be like, oh, it's right there. It's right above Greece. It's right. You know, it's not sort of this exotic Eastern Europe. It's right. like right in the heart of Europe. Right. And, um, you know, when I arrived – and so I – and, and I, I researched the school and um, discovered that it's a school. It's a very excellent school. Students um, come from across the country and take a very stringent exam to get in. And it just seemed to me like – and I would live in a city in Sofia and, you know, among real people, not just sort <laughs> right. of – The elite the gathered. The elite gathered, and... exactly. And so it just seemed like it would be a better experience. And I knew one person from music school. Um, from the Eastman School of Music, a pianist who had gone back to Sofia. And so I thought, I know I have one friend. Oh, that's helpful. And I took the plunge and I fell in love. I mean, I was caught um, by this place, by the language, which I think is the most beautiful language in the world and which I worked very, very hard to learn. And, um, you know, it was just a transformative experience. Yeah, I feel such deep gratitude. You know, my life as a prose writer began there. Mm -hmm. What Belongs to You was the first fiction I'd ever written. And um, some, in some mysterious way that I don't understand, Bulgaria made me a novelist. Hmm. And, 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 you know, there, there are specific qualities about Bulgaria, as, as you have taught me, as mm -hmm. I've learned from reading you, that seem to make sense for – the narrator in terms of why it's attractive. Mm. Um, because here you went to this place where, you know, so cleanness gives me a little more context right. about Bulgaria. There, there's talk about the brain drain right. that that all of its talent, most talented citizens are, are leaving. Absolutely. Every single one, almost every single one of my students left and I taught. I mean, these were the most brilliant students I had ever taught anywhere. And um, all of them were desperate for the broader horizon they could find elsewhere. And and also that the language itself is is dying. Well, I mean, that's uh, you know the narrator that the does narrator think says that, that, but that's quite dramatic. You know, he's sort okay, of projecting good to far. Know. But I will say, you know, Bulgaria has the biggest demographic crisis in the EU. Right. In 1989, when communism fell, there were more than nine million people in Bulgaria. Now there are fewer than seven. And that's because nearly everyone who can leave does. Right. There's a huge Bulgarian diaspora. In fact, you know, I think is it the third or the fourth largest Bulgarian city by population of Bulgarians is Chicago. Um, mm. You know, there are these huge wow. – there's a huge diaspora of people who have sought broader opportunities. And that was the case. You know, my students had spent their entire lives oriented towards the West, towards America right. or towards the EU. Right. And, um, you know, that is a – it is a crisis, I think. Hmm. And, uh, of course, an, an, another major th threat about Bulgaria, which I, I feel like both for you and the narrator, um, it appears as though um, they are not at all accepting of of the queer lifestyle mm. or, or addressing – even addressing it in any way, that your characters are mostly closeted. Mm. And what an, what a, an amazing thing to choose 
to be in a place where you can't be yourself out in the open. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I my experience as a queer person in Bulgaria was, of course, different from a Bulgarian's mm-hmm. experience as a queer person in Bulgaria because, I mean, I was open. I was openly queer from okay. – you know, it was important to me from the first day that all my students knew. Um, I was protected. My right. um, contract was governed by the laws of the state of Massachusetts, mm. which gave me protections. I had queer colleagues, queer Bulgarian colleagues – who um, could not be open because they felt, and I think they were right, that if they were open, they would be fired and they didn't have the same kinds of protections. Right. Um, you know, it's true. So I was the only openly queer person in the school community. I was oh. the only openly queer person almost anyone, any of my students had ever met in real life. I met extraordinary brave, brilliant activists mm-hmm. in Bulgaria who, um, you know, were made even in the four years that I was there, extraordinary progress. Right. And, you know, we watched – so Bulgaria joined the EU in 2007 and the next year they had their first pride parade. Right. And each – and the first pride parade was stopped by nationalists throwing Molotov cocktails and um, it was, you know, a few dozen people. And each year, the Pride Parade got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, at my school, um, you know, I and several of my colleagues worked very hard to try to make the school a safer place for queer people. And, um, you know, because I was the only openly queer person, students who knew they were queer or thought they might be queer came to talk to me. Right. And one of the things that I think, you know, one of the reasons I had to write what belongs to you was because I had to figure out why I kept writing these sentences that began in Sofia and ended in Kentucky. (laughs) And I had to figure out why in this place that was, you know, in some sense, you know, I had been running away from Kentucky since I was 16 years old and Bulgaria seems as far as you can go. (laughs) And why was it there that I kept feeling like I was being thrust back into the world of my childhood. And I think one of the reasons is because as my students told me their stories for all of the differences, it felt like my story. And I came to understand that these are both places where queer people are taught a single lesson about their lives, which is that their lives lack value and their lives lack meaning. And, you know, to understand that point of contact, um, you know, that in some way – you know, equipped me to do what the second section of What Belongs to You does, which is – and the second section is the most autobiographical section. The mm-hmm. book is full of invention. It clearly draws, you know, from details of my life, but it's not autobiography at all. Right. But the middle section is the landscape of my childhood. And um, there are moments where I confront um, exactly what I had been running away from. And I think that, you know, Bulgaria allowed me to do that. The distance allowed me to do that. Seeing the same dynamics from the position of an adult and from a teacher and, you know, seeing my students and having watching them change my sense of myself when I was their age undergoing things like my father telling me I wasn't his son, Mm. you know, and that that, um, you know, that was just an enormous gift, really, you know, Um, I feel so grateful to that place. I feel so grateful to the book, What Belongs to You, writing, which, you know, helped me process mm-hmm. some of that. And it was, you know, and I could only process it in fiction. You know? 
what 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 is it about fiction that you think allowed you that freedom to process? Well, you know, I think the reason I make art, there, I mean, or I think, well, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but you know, I would like to say the reason one makes art, but yes. you know, I the reason I make art is because there is something I need to understand. And all of the other ways I have of making meaning are inadequate. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of yes. logic is inadequate. Um, you know, expository thinking is inadequate. And instead, I need the formal pressures of scene and of the kinds of sentences that I write. Yes. Um, which in which sort of syntax puts a lot of pressure on what's being said. Yes. And, you know, I like to say this thing that to me is really true of my experience that I don't think of sentences as containers, that we have a thought and we pour it into a sentence. Instead, the sentence is a tool for thinking. It produces – I would not think the same way if I didn't have this particular technology of kind of the, you know, um, the novel of consciousness, this sentence that is right. expansive and recursive and self-questioning and self-correcting, that I need those tools in order not to solve a problem and not to present an argument, but to inhabit a dilemma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do think that the deepest questions of human life they don't have answers. Right. You know, there's a reason the eternal questions are eternal and that there are they are quandaries and they are double binds. Yes. And you know what art can do is try to take dilemma and not resolve it, not you know make it disappear, but instead somehow make it productive, make mm. it productive of thinking, make it productive of beauty, make it productive of affect of feeling. And that takes dilemma, and instead of being impasse, dilemma can be a way of moving forward or of at least sort of, you know, making the corner one is stuck in a little more ample, sure. which feels meaningful to me. Absolutely. I love that. Um, and And I do feel as though – your your sex scenes work oh. very yeah i'm just going <laughs> to i'm so glad i makes um, me very happy <laughs> <laughs> work th- my feeling about that was when you were telling me what your sentences do um is is also what your sex scenes do in terms of they're not just meant to be they enhance both plot and characters and lead to epiphany Oh, well, that, I mean, it makes me so happy to, to hear you say that. I mean, I feel so strongly that this prejudice against representing sex in Anglo-American art and especially literature mm-hmm. is just the most bizarre thing. As though we would say, you know, all of these arguments that are resurrected every year around that totally odious bad sex award, yeah. that sex can't be written well. That, you know, you have to draw the curtain, that it's inexpressible. You know, it seems so strange to me, so bizarre that this vast, crucial, central territory of human experience and feeling would be off limits to art. That's just bizarre. And to me, it's precisely the sort of density of sex, density of sex as an act of human communication. I'm not sure there's an act of human communication that is so impacted with meaning. Yes, 
And you know what I wanted to do in this book? I mean, I wanted to write sex explicitly and as explicitly as I could, much more explicitly than in What Belongs to You, yes. which people talk about What Belongs to You as if it had a lot of sex in it. But there's only like three pages of explicit sex writing. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's a sexy book. And, you know, and there's a way in which like what you were saying in comparing the sex scenes to the sentences. I mean, I do think syntax is erotic. I think syntax is mm. eros and the kind of sort of delay and delivery and, you know, turning backwards and turning forwards. Um, I mean, that is to me a sort of something I feel in my body. And it is something that I think, you know, potentially can be mimetic of the experience of sex. And that is very exciting to me, you know, to sort of, you know, delay and then deliver pleasure, deliver meaning. Yes. Um, and so what I wanted to do was not just write as explicitly as I could, although I wanted to do that. I wanted to – I had an intuition that if I combined that kind of explicit sex writing with the kind of sentence that I write, this sort of Jamesian, you know, phenomenological um, sentence that that tries to, to put on the page the experience of consciousness, mm -hmm. I felt like the combination of those two things might yield revelation, that I might yeah. – be able to discover something that I had not realized before about these territories of human feeling. And it's it's particularly interesting to me that um, the second story in your work of fiction um, <laughs> is not chronologically what That's happens right. second. That's right. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail, sure. but um, not because I don't want to talk about sex, <laughs> but I don't want to spoil anything. But um, the narrator experiences true submission right. um, in a way it comes right after first love. Uh, that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what it is. So, um, you know, I discovered this book so slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the first thing I knew about its structure, it was actually writing that second story, which is about a sexual encounter in which the narrator is submissive, that created this book. It wasn't the first chapter that I wrote. It was, I don't even know, third or fourth. But having written it, I knew that I had to write a companion where the narrator would experience being dominant. And um, that fact, the fact that this story goes far, it would be years before I wrote the companion story, which is called The Little Saint and which is the second to last story. Right. But the fact that Gospodar, that second story, Gospodar is the Bulgarian word for master or lord, um, the fact that it called this other story into being also called into being a sense. I didn't understand it, but a sense of the structure that would hold them. Right. And then the thing that I understood, I knew that at the heart of the book, the middle section of the book, which is the only section that has a title, and it's called Loving R. And mm. R is the narrator's boyfriend, a kind of conventional love relationship he yes. has and a transformative experience. It's an experience of a kind of love he had thought he could never have. And it transforms the world. And that section, those three chapters or stories are chronological. I knew that that story would have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm. And I knew that I wanted, by the time the reader arrived at that middle section, I wanted them to know that the relationship would end and that the narrator would be devastated. 
and that that devastation is part of what leads him to the very harrowing, yes, um, difficult uh, encounter he has in the second chapter. Yes. So yeah, that experience of sort of a chronology. You know, it's you do this very instinctively. Like I, you know, I didn't have a program in mind. But maybe it's something like this is a friend suggested this to me and it felt true. You know, the experience you have, I don't know if you've had this experience, but surely everyone's had this experience of um, like you have a dream that returns you to a past moment in which you were supremely happy. Yeah. And then you wake up. Right. And the poignancy of that. And yes. when I when that happens to me, the gratitude I feel to have been delivered that happiness in the dream, but then really the kind of renewed devastation of losing <laughs> yes. it again, waking up. It was something like that, you know, that I wanted the book to enact. Absolutely. And then even as a reader, you kind of – or I did. As a reader, I wanted to go very slowly mm. in, in, in that middle part because oh, I wanted to savor – that truly happy. Mm. Well, thank you for reading my book that way. It makes me very happy. <laughs> to know. No, thank you for for writing it that way. Um, ooh, we're we're kind of running out of time. Um, I, I did want to ask you a little bit more about the protest scene. Sure. Because again, this is me not being able, not knowing enough to distinguish reality from fiction. What is the current political situation like in Bulgaria? Well, you know, I mean, I can't speak right, in an right, educated right. way to the current um, situation. At the time. So, um, you know, so when I went to Bulgaria, um, it was right at the moment of the economic crisis. Mm. And that was hugely destabilizing. And in fact, you know, a lot of what we're seeing happen in America, I feel like happened in Eastern Europe and before. In, in, before. And the way – and even, you know, um, Putin extending influence. Mm -hmm. And I felt that, you know, queer people are often the first people targeted. Right. And I felt that very strongly because in my first two years, my first three years even, I felt like I was seeing progress happen. And I was seeing, you know, the discourse change. I remember being shocked in my first weeks in Bulgaria because I saw um, a newspaper – and I saw the word pedal, which means faggot, and that a politician had called another politician a pedal, and it was in a headline. And I just thought, wow, like that's so shocking to me. I mean, you know, you see it in graffiti all the time, but on, sure. in a newspaper, on a headline. And, and that changed the sense of, you know, queer lives. I, I remember my third year, I think, there was, I was watching television. Um, you know, national station and the news had a segment, a very beautiful segment on two women raising a child together. And I thought this is an image of queerness I have never seen in Bulgaria. So I felt like I saw progress. And then all of a sudden, as if with one voice, mm. the Bulgarian Orthodox Church and the, the nationalist parties started talking about gay propaganda, which is a term, a, a, an idea that Putin invented. Mm. And I saw that pushback and, um, you know, the attempt that Putin is making to take these countries like Bulgaria away from the influence of Europe and the West right, and reassert a kind of spiritual Soviet Union. So, you know, um, the political situation was, was – became more and more dire. The economic crisis was extremely 
dire in Bulgaria, which is the poorest country in the EU. And um, in 2012 and 2013, things erupted in these peaceful, often very beautiful, although also sometimes frightening and harrowing. Um, I think it was six people, five, six people, uh, very early on at the beginning of these protests, um, protested by setting themselves on fire. And then there was this wave of street protests. And in 2013, just as I was leaving the country, there was an enormous sense of the possibility of change. And, you know, working as a high school teacher, working with young people um, was incredibly powerful in that moment. And even that the narrator then encounters his student. In this protest. And, you know, and it felt like a way to explore you know, what it means when you work with young people to be implicated in the destiny of a place. Mm. It's not his country. It's not his home. But he loves these students and their destiny is bound up with their country's destiny. Thank you so much for being here. I want to ask you very quickly what else you've been reading. I want to talk about two books that I think okay, are good. extraordinary and that have not gotten enough attention from last year. The first of them is the best debut I read last year. Yes. Which is Jaja Lin's The Unpassing, oh. which was published by FSG okay. and which I think is an absolutely stunning book about family, about childhood, about Alaska, about um, immigrant experience in America. I think it's just one of the most beautiful books. I don't know another book in which emotion builds so inexorably. Like the last page, you feel like you can't breathe. You're so moved. It's a gorgeous book. And then a book that came out um, also last year that I think is the most extraordinary novel I've read in many years, which is Yoon Lee's Where Reasons End. Yes. And, you know, I feel like this book, it did not get as many readers as it should have. It got very good reviews and it got, you know, Leslie Jameson chose it as her book of the decade. So it's not that people don't know about this book. I think people are scared away about from it. Sure. It's a – It's a – it's because the topic sounds so hard. Yes. You know, it's a woman who has lost her child to suicide and she's imagining these posthumous conversations with her child. And what I want to tell to everyone, everyone is that while it is, um, you know, a, it – faces up to the difficulty of that circumstance. It is finally not a crushing book. And in fact, you know, I recently read it again for the third time after several months of not mm. reading. It was a book that I read and then immediately read again. Um, it is full of humor. It is full of joy. And somehow it creates a space for this extraordinary reconciliation. And I think it also invents new technology for the novel. I think mm. I think Ian Lee is a genius, and everyone should read Where Reasons End. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, me too. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.